This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender, experience, and perspective. I'm Amy Breslow. Each week I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. When I use the word gender, I mean the range of social roles, personality traits, attitudes, behaviors, values, and relative power that society assigns to females, males, and other individuals. Gender is an identity that is learned. How we define gender changes over time and can vary within and across cultures. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Episode 28. My guest today is Soraya, who identifies as a cisgender multi-ethnic woman and uses she-her pronouns. Hello, Soraya. Welcome to Your Own Voice. And usually I'm saying that because somebody is sitting at my kitchen table, but today, because of uh, the pandemic, we're doing this virtually. Oh, I'm delighted to be here with you, Amy. Thank you. So I'd like to start off by asking, how do you identify? (laughs) That's a very good question. Um, How do I identify? I am a woman, cisgendered, multi-ethnic. I think that is probably the way I would most clearly identify. And when did you first become aware of different gender roles? I think that I was aware of different gender roles very, very early in life. I don't really remember a time in my memory of being conscious and not being aware of different gender roles. It was just very uh, pervasive in the culture that I grew up in, um, which was a, I I grew up in the Bahamas and it was still a colony when I was young. And uh, colonial culture is... Uh, I would categorize it as maybe more harshly blunt about the cross currents that we have in our lives today. And so if you're a child and you're growing up in the United States um, or as I did in the Caribbean, I, I think you're probably quite attuned to that. And either you follow the rules and you double down on them and you absorb them all and think, okay, this is just the way life is, or you feel a great unease and friction that puts you at odds maybe with the rest of your community sometimes. Did you ever push back or talk to your family about this? <laughs> I was a walking pushback, yes. <laughs> there was really not a time when I wasn't actively fighting. And I also grew up, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, childhood and and adolescence. And that was a really interesting time for women's liberation and for um, black liberation movements around the world, and then the backlash to those movements. So it was also in the culture, it was in the music, it was in the art. And the country I was in, the Bahamas, actually went through independence when I was seven years old. So it was just part of life. And there were some people who were pushing back, and then there were some people who were not. They were clinging. What in your personal life brought you to study gender and then go on to work on gender issues uh, in your professional life? Um, I think there were several things. One was 
I grew up in a traditional Catholic family. And in that environment, gender is very important. Uh, gender roles are quite rigid. It's quite authoritarian. And double standards are very clear. And I had a brother who was two years younger than I am. And he and I grew up tied at the hip, very close, always doing the same things, um, really good friends. And as we got older, that became more and more difficult, not because we didn't want to be friends in that way, but because of the imposition of expectations related to gender. The differences were quite stark to me um, in the way people treated us and talked about us or expected us to do things. And they were stark and didn't make sense. So there was that incoherence. Why is this happening? And then I remember, too, when I was maybe 10 or 11, um, saying to my parents that I thought I wanted to be a priest. And it never occurred to me that a girl couldn't be a priest. And my mother sort of looked at me and said, well, you're going to have to talk to the our, our, our priest about that. But my father, I remember, just burst out laughing. And he burst out laughing because it never occurred to him, A, that, a, a woman could be a priest. And I think he realized that by that point, I had in the, for quite a few years been pushing back against the double standards um, in our own household. And he was just laughing because my mother had just punted me to the priest. And so when I got to the priest and spoke to him, he happened to be a drunk priest. He was an Irish expat. And I remember so clearly um, talking to him. And I, I said, so basically what you're saying is that this really comes down, well, what I said was to the fact that men have penises and, and, and women don't. And you're like, that's the whole thing. And he couldn't really come up with a good explanation. I thought that can't be right. So I studied it for a very long time. I studied it. I, I just kept reading, uh, reading history and theology and and I got to college, and I studied it some more. And at the end of about 10 years, I'm like, no, it is really sexism. Like, the, the misogyny is so profound um, that there's no, like, there's, there's no, like, divine rationalization. It's kind of nonsense. So I, I studied history, and I took women's studies, and um, then became a, a writer and an editor, and eventually moved to the technical and business side of publishing and media and data technology. But then I came back to writing and editing about 10 years ago. And the environment of writing had been altered radically by social media. And so what is clearly the case is that if you are a woman online, if you're a woman online who's writing about quote-unquote women's issues, which frankly I don't believe in. Um, and if you are an explicitly feminist, there's an immense amount of hostility to public engagement. And that's true especially for women politicians and women journalists. And that comes in the form of threats like rape threats and death threats or threats against your family. Um, it comes in the form of photo manipulation that is highly sexualized of you or your family, for example, um, a lot of people, and they are overwhelmingly men, will send graphic pornography um, or videos of themselves engaged in sexual acts. 
And when I first started writing, I was really genuinely appalled that this was the cost of women sharing their opinions. And so started working with other women writers. We were all very worried by the number of women who were disengaging, who were stopping writing, who were not engaging in the political sphere because of their worries and their anxieties and their concerns for themselves or their families. And so that really put me on the path of being an activist. How do you and other women who are putting themselves out there navigate this really difficult and sometimes terrible stuff that is coming from anonymous sources online? So I've seen so many different responses. You can only protect yourself so much. Uh, You really have to be able to assess what works for you and calibrate your responses accordingly. I mean, for some people, it's just too terrible and anxiety-provoking. And as I said, they step back. And that affects women in every sector. It's not just women writers or politicians, because anybody who is exposed online, and we are all exposed online, opens themselves up to this kind of malevolent targeting. It just so happens that it happens more to women, particularly women of color or women who are gender transgressive, um, trans women, uh, you know, queer women, uh, people who are sexually non-conforming. And you can just see that they are more frequently and more intensely harassed for being in the public world. Um, there are steps that you can take. I actually run a, an initiative for the Women's Media Center called The Speech Project that is focused on all of these issues. And we have published there a series of guides that operate at different levels of technical sophistication that help people understand digital security, digital privacy, how to lock down their personal data, how to do audits, um, so that at least they can take measures that for better or worse, are necessary. I mean, all women have different risk assessment because of the threat of violence that we that we navigate, whether consciously or not. We spend a lot more time, effort, and money um, in our hypervigilance, um, keeping ourselves safe from predation, essentially. Um, and we have to do the same thing online. Some of us have a higher tolerance for it. I would say that mine was fueled, my my my... Um, doing the work that I ended up doing was fueled by uh, rage and indignance. (laughs) Understood. And what I'm hearing you say is that we as women, we're often looking over our shoulder and we are always taking many more security precautions, whether you get into an Uber or go shopping or you're just taking a walk around the neighborhood we are constantly thinking about our physical safety in the physical world. So what I'm hearing you say is that we should be having that same level of awareness and translating this awareness to the virtual world. I mean, unfortunately, it comes at great cost to us, right? It comes at financial cost, cost to our civil liberties, cost to our freedom of expression or movement. I mean, I think a lot of people, men and women, really look away from the ways in which women are forced to adapt. We spend more money on gyms. We spend more money on travel. We spend more money on safe transportation, like having to take taxis or Ubers if we can afford them, right? And so these these are just calculations we make without thinking about it. I mean, even if you think about 
parking. Where do you park? Where do you park at night? Do you park far away? Do you park nearby? Do you pay for parking if you have a car? You know, are you, um, are you vigilant in ways about where you invest your money? Like if you are going to rent something or buy something or you need to find a home you move to a new city, women are just far less likely to take advantage of neighborhoods with high real estate investment potential, right? Because they have to then pay a lot more for security. And we just don't talk about these things. We just do them. And the same thing happens online. And so women's assessment of risk online is very different from most men's assessment of risk. And we see that gap in the failures of products and services online all the time, because frankly, just not enough there's not enough diversity in the production of our technology, in the engineering of our technology. And so the risk assessment that goes into creating that technology is poor, and then the harms are greater because they're just blind spots and, and loopholes that malevolent actors can take advantage of. So um, what you're saying is if we had people designing the stuff who were more aware, it wouldn't be so dangerous. But right now... They're just oblivious. Right. And and it's not just women. I mean, if you think about a game like Pokemon Go, which the world played, right? Augmented reality, super fun game. But if if you were a young black man and you're playing this game and you're standing on the sidewalk waving your arms and looking deranged, a policeman might shoot you, right? And so there are all kinds of considerations that go... I remember, you know, all these scooters that are everywhere. All these cities have scooters lying around. Someone thought it would be a really fun and interesting thing to program scooters to get people's attention um, by having them play a, an automatic recording. And the automatic recording that was used was something like, I need help, please call the police. And you just think, who thought that was a good idea? Certainly not someone who has to be vigilant about the possibility of state violence against them, you know? So yes, I mean, inclusion and diversity in the creation of the tech is just really important. So I'd like to shift a bit. One of the things that I'm concerned about is for folks who this is not a part of their daily work life. It isn't something that they think about every day. And they may be doing things online that they're not aware could be dangerous or harmful in the long term. Would you mind saying a few words about things that you have seen or witnessed that might be helpful for others to hear? Uh, sure. I, I think there are a couple of some, some basic ideas about online life that are important to understand. One is the defaults built into most applications and platforms are not there to help us as uh, citizens or consumers. So you should all always be aware of the fact that you're probably geolocated and that that location is being broadcast broadly, that anybody can see it um, and anybody can use it. And so you should always be turning off your geolocation unless you have a specific reason for having it on. Now, a lot of parents, for example, like to track their kids, which is problematic on many levels. Um, but in fact, that can also be a risk for people, for those kids and for those parents. So they should 
talk about it openly and, and think about what it entails. It is possible to turn off geolocation. Same thing with sharing photos. There's a lot of metadata on photos, which you can strip out using simple apps. Um, but the photos will place you in a location. And um, that that is maybe not something that's always desirable or advisable. Um, so I always have concerns about geolocation and uh, the assumption that anybody everywhere can know where you are is a good thing. The second thing is, again, comes down to photographs and privacy. I have to admit that I'm just genuinely appalled when I see parents sharing a lot of photographs of their children, particularly maybe more intimate types of photographs. And by that, I don't mean nudity necessarily, but um, things, images that a child might look at and say, what were you thinking? Like, why would you have shared that? Children have privacy. They, have, they should have the right to privacy and the right to manage their own identities. And a lot of people just think of their children as extensions of themselves, um, and they would never set out to do harm explicitly, but harm can happen. And, you know, I've seen people not at all involved in politics or in media uh, men and women who work in other fields entirely. I mean, a person could be a dentist or, um, uh, you know, some some other job. And um, if they get attacked online by an irate customer or any number of bad actors, for women, unfortunately, that usually means someone they knew. Um, women are more likely to be targeted by acquaintances or people that they have been in relationships with. It's an extension of stalking and intimate partner violence. Um, but in those cases, images of children, uh, physical location, are really easy tools to hand to a malevolent person. Um, so that's why we advocate for understanding digital security and safety and privacy um, and for using the tools that are available the way you would around your own home. I mean, I think that the internet is like opening a door to your house and just leaving it open for anybody to come in and out of any time. But you can make a choice about that. You don't have to do that. Soraya, what do you think is possible today, given the current conversation around gender? I may be the wrong person to ask. I'm not feeling particularly optimistic about today. Um, I think that today... The upside is that maybe more women feel supported and believed when they come forward. Maybe they feel less isolated because of the immense impact of Me Too and Time's Up. But I'm not yet convinced of that, to be honest. Um, I, I, I'm kind of waiting a little longer to see what the outcomes are. I feel that for too many people, for too large a proportion of the population, there is backlash. There's this feeling, which I keep I keep hearing people say, well, Me Too's gone too far, which I never really understand. I'm like, what on earth does that mean? Sexual violence and harassment are harms. They're threats against our rights. They inhibit our equality. I don't understand. Does that just mean we're equal enough and we should shut up? Um, I, I, I never... Well, you know, very clearly, I don't, I don't, I'm not part of this backlash. So I guess it would be hard for me to understand. But 
but the backlash is a kind of response to the threat against identity, right? It's we just want things to stay stable and the way they are, and and you know you you, you have it pretty pretty good over here, like you know. And then there's always the women over there argument. They have it far worse. You should be grateful for essentially the argument is for what we're giving you, um, and that's just what it is. So I. I I would say that yes, maybe more more people are speaking up, but I don't see that our institutions are being radically altered by that, and I'm just waiting. Can you tell me about a time when you thought, I can't do something, or if I tried to do this thing, that the consequences would be so great that it wasn't worth trying? I mean, I, I will say... I've certainly paused and I have self-censored and I've thought I don't really have the energy to engage in a full-on onslaught of harassment. So maybe I'll pause before I publish this or maybe just to save the next two weeks of my life from the, the need to be vigilant and lock everything. Down. I mean, there you know, there are steps that have to be taken if you anticipate a sort of surge in, in harassment. Um, so it has, there have been times when I've thought, is, do, I, do I really have it in me right now to fight this fight? Do I want to say these things or can it wait? Are there other practices that you or other women that you know do to build your resilience or build your endurance or simply just to support each other? Well, certainly that's the most important thing. I mean, almost immediately I, I turned to other women who were in the situation I was in. We started talking. We formed networks. We formed organizations. We formed collaborations that are global, right? We work, many of us work virtually, and we work across borders because we're all encountering the same issues, and we need to coordinate our efforts and that's been true now for 10 years. And I don't think it, I mean, it's not even remotely possible that I could still be writing and doing the activism work that I do without those women. And there are some men involved, but it's overwhelmingly women um, who started a lot of their work in anti-violence work or freedom of expression work, or as journalists, you know, they just wanted to write and that became increasingly difficult. Um, and so many of us then became activists in this space, and we formed these bonds that enable us to commiserate and to support each other. Um, some of us can step back when we need to, others step forward. It's I call it a baton passing exercise. Understood. And I know you're talking professionally, but I imagine there must be groups like this just for everyday people that you don't have to be a professional. Oh, not at all. You just need to find your people and just know that you can trust each other and you can turn to each other to, to talk, to, to offer help, to just listen. Is there something that you would like to see everyday people start doing now to make a change around gender? I always say you should question your assumptions around gender all the time because so many of our assumptions are stereotypes. And we fall back on them because it makes life more efficient and easy. And we have these schemas in our brain that we grow up uh, learning to operate with. But we all need to be interrogating those. We need to be thinking about it. 
recently, uh, not even recently, for years now, but again recently, I've really been thinking, particularly honestly, since we're all in self-isolation and lockdown right now, been thinking a lot about the roots of this in families. And one of the things that people don't really think about is the way domestic work gets done, the way care work gets done. And it remains true that it's super gendered um, within families. So women and girls who do chores are doing, on average, in the United States, two hours more a week. And that's kind of a wealth transfer. That's a transfer of time to men and boys in which they play games or do sports or do paid work. Um, and we don't really think of it that way. And and the work that boys and girls and men and women are doing in the homes are also very gendered. So we find, you know, boys might be expected to take out the trash and girls are expected to vacuum and boys are paid allowance more often for their chores. They're paid more for their chores. They're all of this, this, you know, these are microcosms of our larger work lives. And so kids come to really think in terms of sex segregated occupation and have in their own home experiences, a different valuation of people's time and work. So I always just say, you know, step back and think about what your behavior is conveying as opposed to what words you might be saying. Because, and this has been shown to be especially true of men, men say they want to support women and they say that they believe in women's equality and they're appalled by the state of affairs. But when the rubber hits the road, we still have this two hour gap and we also face a lot of doubt when we talk about our harassment or the things that affect our lives that are directly related to gender and gender expectations. So Soraya, is there anything else that you would like to add either on something that we've already discussed or something that I didn't bring up? I think one of the issues, and this is related to me too, and believing women when they speak, um, is is complicated because I, I think some people think, well, if if women can speak without being interrupted or talked down to or explained to about their own experiences, if they can speak and if people believe them, then change will come because people behave rationally. Um, but in fact, we have a, a real problem, and that is that for men in particular who continuously for years now it's been shown they have much higher levels of doubt about what women are saying. So over 50% of American men think sexism is a thing of the past, for example. And um, they grossly underestimate the incidence of sexual harassment, sexual discrimination, and uh, street harassment and rape. Like, by, by, like 50% will underestimate it. And so the question is, all right, so we provide the information, and then what? because they're not believing us and they have more power in the society to make change. And, and also just in terms of intimate life, you need to know that the person, if you're in a heterosexual relationship with a man, that he trusts you, right? Like what, what does it mean to say something and then to realize that this person is not listening or not believing you is dismissing what you're saying, which unfortunately for many women in heterosexual relationships is clearly the case. And so why? Why wouldn't they believe us when we say something? Because to be a good man, too many men and boys learn almost everywhere in the world 
means to provide and protect. And providing and protecting are both constructed around women's vulnerabilities and and children. And, and that connection, is, it represents an infantilization of women, right? That they're weaker and that they need this protection. But in both ways, men's own identities are inherently dependent on women's vulnerabilities. I mean, if women, which is what women are saying through Me Too, if they're saying, hey, I'm not safe, I'm not being protected, I'm being harassed on the street and at work and at school, that means men are failing to protect them. That means the men they're closest to are not fulfilling one of the most basic aspects of their responsibilities as good men. If women are saying, and oh, by the way, all of that, all of that threat and harassment it's wearing me down. It's making it very difficult for me to work and to get paid fairly and to support myself or support my family. What does that mean? I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work if men are supposed to provide for, for the people around them. And so there's no room in providing and protecting for women's equality. And so if a man hears all of this, it's a threat to his own identity. So what's the the, 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 the rational, logical cognitive and emotional response is to deny it, to say it can't be that bad, right? And so we need to find a way to define masculinity in ways that don't rely on women being vulnerable or subservient or dependent in the same way. There is a way to, to, to have masculinity, even if we still use the words provide and protect, not rely on that vulnerability. So provide and protecting can in fact be changed to mean supporting women in their objectives as opposed to denying them. Um, And that's the kind of conversation we need to be having around our dinner tables. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It goes back to something you've said several times throughout the conversation, which is this stuff starts in the home. And how do we treat our sons and our daughters? That's right. That's right. And how are we treating each other, you know, like as adults? Because, I I mean, I I wrote this book about anger and one one of the clear issues is in these heterosexual relationships and marriages because heterosexual marriage is a, is a gender factory, right? It just produces patterns of behavior by default. And one of the, the worst kind of patterns is that if a woman in a relationship gets angry, um, the majority of women in, in heterosexual relationships will not say they're angry. They'll say they're sad or fearful and because they're worried that if they get angry, they'll be penalized by their spouse in some way. And in fact, they're not wrong because the majority of men in those relationships say that they find anger in a woman selfish and disruptive. But what is anger if not an expression of need and the demand that the people around you listen to you and care enough to address what's concerning you and then make change. And and I'm not talking about a kind of destabilizing rage. I'm talking about the fact that anger can, can be that kind of signal that says, hey, there's something wrong here. Something was done that needs to be addressed, you know, but it's when you don't address it that the real harms come. It's when the mismanagement of the anger comes. It's when illness comes. It's you know, it's when you lose intimacy with a person. So it's children, but it's also between adults. I happen to strongly agree with you that anger has an important role to play and we shouldn't be avoiding it. 
I like the way you talk about it, that we can't be afraid of our anger. Right. And, and we are punished for the anger. I mean, I, I also talk about anger as a change agent. Um, but that comes with the realization that there are real risks to women being angry. Um, and those risks change, you know, at different stages of our lives and depending on other aspects of our identities. But really and truly, no one's running, running towards angry women, <laughs> you know. And yet we, we need to be able to express righteous anger. Do you have thoughts about safe ways for people to express anger? I think that it really helps to think about anger in terms of its value. Um, Audre Lorde talked about anger as knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's insight. It's a kind of intelligence about what's happening around you and in your life. And we should think of it that way. Also, I think um, we need to understand anger as connection, as creativity, as a way to sublimate something that we learn to think of as negative and turn it into a positive force in life. And I think everyone has the capacity to do that. And I don't mean going to rage rooms and breaking things, which, by the way, actually has been shown to make people angrier, <laughs> not not to spell their anger, because rage rooms, for example, they, they don't deal with the root causes of why you may be feeling rage. By the time you feel rage, you've gone past the point of the anger being useful. You're so frustrated that it's another form of mismanagement, right? Um, but a anger brings a lot to, to the world if it's understood properly, if you can make meaning of it. And I think everyone has the capacity to do that. Soraya, thank you so much for joining me today. We're having this conversation really at the beginning of this pandemic and getting used to social distancing and what that means. And I, to say for myself, it's these kinds of conversations, having these kinds of connections. This is, this is very important to me. And I just am really grateful that you virtually joined me today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was really wonderful to talk to you, Amy. And I so appreciate the conversations that you're having. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. Your Own Voice is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with IT support from Alex Moreno and is registered with ProtectRight, music by Kevin McLeod. If you have comments or questions you'd like addressed on the show, please submit them on the website, yourownvoice.org slash contact. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, I invite you to check out my Patreon page, patreon.com, Your Own Voice Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well.